Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. And for those of you who don't know Josh, Josh is a radio host on iHeartRadio, great friend of the groups, and, uh, you know, potentially the show host for our morning show coming out in a few weeks. And so Josh was going to come in and co-host the second half of the show today just to get introduced to everybody. But you know what? Any good host is ready on a dime. So Josh Carey, take on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain this Tuesday. Oh, wow. I thought, oh, wow. So I'm going the first hour, too. How exciting. Thanks for the for the vote of confidence. Uh, well, let's see what I can make here. This is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchains coming to you right from Twitter Spaces. As you know, we do this every Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Please make sure to follow your hosts Follow the Market Masters and follow Get Rev Radio on Twitter. This is, of course, Revolution Radio, Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. So we're going to get going in a moment. All right, well, if you've been uh, attached to any headline today, you've probably heard the big news about um, Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Florida is going to be announcing his presidential run on Twitter spaces. We're going to lead with that in just a moment. We'll certainly be getting the ins and outs of that. We're going to cover the debt ceiling debacle that's happening. Uh, Memorial Day right around the corner. We're going to talk about the airline prosperity. We're also going to talk about China bans, Micron's chips, and what that means. And like I said, our market masters are here to break all of that down for us. So Josh, why don't we kick off a little bit of global macro. John, what do you see going on this week? Well, uh, and thank you very much, Josh and Michael. Um, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to enjoy some time on Fox with uh, Charles Payne today. He is uh, always a great host that lets you talk and discuss points and things like that. And Palo Alto Networks is a stock that uh, I was trading, and he wanted to know where we thought the stock would go. Luckily, it went the direction we thought. Doesn't always happen that way, but... You know, I think the odds did favor it. The market wasn't pricing things quite correctly. And, uh, you know, it's it's some people say it's a random walk down Wall Street. Other people say it's uh, smart money uh, casting their bets, uh, putting their dollars where their mouth is. And anyway, um, overall, it seems that people are watching Michael and Josh, watching primarily to see whether or not 
we do something stupid like invoke the 14th Amendment. We went over that a lot Sunday. Mark Lepresti covered that very well on Sunday. Mark, as who? far as. Okay. Yep. B- B3 Nation, I am technically savvy, or at least I think I'm technically savvy. I'm pretty good at training and picking tech stocks, but getting my audio set up right for Twitter spaces is apparently beyond the scope of my superpowers. My sincere apologies. And on a day when we have my special friend, guest host Josh Carey joining us, OMFG, how did that happen? What the Nobody hell? Nobody will never know. Yeah, we don't know how that's happened. I, I mean, I let you down, Josh. I just totally let you down, flat out. No, but ho- hopefully in the interim, I lifted you up. <laughs> that's what friends do. Dr. J, apologies for interrupting. Where are we in our fantastic schedule of topics, Josh? Are we still well, in the we were, market overview? Yeah, we were in the market overview, and then we'll double back to the uh, the sponsor read when you have a moment. All right, I'll let, I'll let Dr. J do the phenomenal job that he always does of the market wrap. All right, uh, and thank you, Mark. Um, so I was really just covering, Mark, a little bit of Palo Alto. Um, we also saw some short-term, very short-term trades um, in the market. I know uh, people that trade derivatives a lot have heard this expression, uh, Terry, which is uh, zero day, uh, Josh, I'm sorry, uh, zero days to expiration or Z, or Z uh, basically options. Zero dated options means that they expire in a day. Uh, they don't have a week, three weeks, a month or whatever. They're just daily options. We're seeing that explode right now. And you could kind of understand why, because every day it's like a binary bet. Is there something big going to happen about the debt ceiling or not? And there's a lot of money being placed on those options that have one day or less to live. Uh, And they just get listed again the next day and the next day. But the ones that you trade on Tuesday are only for Tuesday. They don't get to carry over into Wednesday and so forth. So... Uh, the fact that everything's so short-term to us says that the market is not necessarily nervous, but only willing to carry its uh, projections for about, you know, the six and a half hours of the trading day, rather than carrying them overnight, because things can happen, obviously, when the markets are closed. And I think right now we're interested in what's going to happen tomorrow night with Elon and uh, DeSantis coming on together on that Twitter space uh, for Mr. DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, to announce his presidency. But other than that, I think it's more or less just biding our time right now uh, into the Memorial Day weekend. So good. Uh, As we get started on that um, headline of Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk, Mark, tell us about Accelerate Tax. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. So today's phenomenal hard-hitting episode of the B3 Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Twitter Spaces is brought to you proudly by Accelerate Tax. As loyal listeners of the show know, Accelerate Tax is a company that helps SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses, get the money they deserve as a result of business interruption from the terrible COVID pandemic. We're talking, of course, about the Employee Retention Credit Program passed by Congress under the CARES Act intended to help businesses recover from the economic devastation occasioned by that pandemic. SMBs that qualify can receive up to $26,000 per employee. 
You have to have less than 500 employees and be able to demonstrate, among other things, that your business was, in fact, impacted by the COVID pandemic. To learn more about the CARES Act, the ERC program, and whether or not you, uh, your business, I should say, qualifies, head on over to www.accelerate.tax.com to find out more. Now, Mark, I don't know if I, I think it's been said before, and I don't know if you have room for another calling, but you may have missed one. These reads of yours are just mwah. chef's kiss to you. Accelerate Tax would be proud. It's uh, it's it's amazing. So thank you for that. B3 Nation, we're going to move right to our special report here. I'm sure you've already gotten a glimpse of the headline, but it is official, official, in fact. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is planning to announce the start of his 2024 presidential campaign this Wednesday. That is tomorrow at the time of this recording in a live audio conversation right here on Twitter Spaces with Elon Musk. Go figure. Mr. DeSantis's entry into the Republican primary race against former President Donald J. Trump has been widely expected. But the decision to do so with Mr. Musk adds a surprising element, and gives Mr. DeSantis access to a large audience online. NBC News first reported the plans, with the New York Times saying the event on Twitter Spaces, which is planned for Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, injects a level of risk into a rollout that is expected to be carefully scripted, interesting, and ensures that Mr. DeSantis's first impression as a presidential candidate will be aligning himself with Mr. Musk, an eccentric businessman who has ranked at times as the world's richest man. Also, the New York Times probably, what the f- is Twitter spaces? You can imagine. <laughs> but there it's... <laughs> it's so funny, Josh, because the, the fact that, right, like this, and, and everybody in the B3 Nation knows, right, we, we are so proud and happy to be at the forefront of the evolution of this next great phase of, of, of news, of media, of how news is, is, is delivered, how folks interact with it, um, and, and it's, it's really, really exciting. Uh, but this is the first announcement of a presidential candidate, a candidate one that is not, you know, a, a fringe outlier right that has to you know run as an independent that DeSantis could potentially get the Republican nomination we'll have to wrestle it from you know 45's uh, uh, death death grip uh, but this is big news <laughs> and the and the choice of Twitter spaces is the platform and the choice by Elon to be the moderator to be the Josh Carey of that event which is as Josh said planned for 6 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow on this same network on Twitter spaces is nothing short of really, really tremendous news. We're excited about it. We're going to be listening, and we're going to hope that the entire B3 Nation listens along. Cool stuff. Mm. And Market Masters, I want a little more insight here, because while we are on Twitter Spaces, it's almost like you and this show that you've set up was well ahead of the curve. This is not to toot any horn, but isn't this a leading show on the platform. Now you have all other presidential candidates and, uh, uh, you know, um, personalities coming into this space. What about that? Well, yeah, I'll just say quickly, and then I'd love to hear uh, my paisan and my brother, Alex Massioli, who is not only our crypto and digital asset expert, but, uh, but a TradFi guy as well, um, chime in on this one. 
Uh, but look, you know, you've you've had Vivek uh, Ramswamy, the the uh, famous venture capitalist, uh, who's also making a credible bid of, for the for the uh, for the nomination. Uh, you've had other uh, candidates choosing Twitter, not Spaces. This is the first on Spaces, and that's what makes this so interesting. Uh, announcing their candidacy or announcing that they're accepting Bitcoin and in uh, 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 alternative to fiat currency for campaign donations. It's it's really big news, but but Alex, the Paisan Mascioli, what what's your read on this? Um, Mark, as far as uh, Alex and the read, I, I I didn't really get a question out of out of that. <laughs> Wait, is, I, is, I, is Alex not is Alex not with us? No, oh, he is with us. us. But I heard you saying things, but I didn't hear anything that sounded like a question. Oh, more like a statement. I was just looking for Alex's read on the whole DeSantis announcement on Spaces and and the wonderful comments from Josh about our pioneering show. Yeah, listen, um, first of all, I think I think Twitter Spaces is an interesting medium uh, that's coming to life right now. And, you know, I I think of it as... uh, you know, maybe the DVD after the VHS, and it's really this platform that is highlighting and promoting individual people at a lower barrier to entry. And I think the fact that, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, you know, his vision for Twitter as a platform, and it's, and it's twisting towards media more, and of course, we have video coming out uh, this summer, I believe, I think two hours worth at a time and upload he's using DeSantis and this coming out for president uh, announcement to really showcase what I think is $44 billion investment that Twitter is really about and what the future holds. And of course, and I, I am sure Mark would agree and, and everybody else in my, uh, my, my panel here is, you know, B3 nation. We, we were one of the first to come out, and start really doing a media type uh, regular scheduled show on here, and I think that's what I think that's what Elon Musk wants, and I think DeSantis is going to be his billboard for what the future is with this platform. I completely agree with Alex. If I could just piggyback off that, and I have a, a bit of a spicy take and, and kind of theory to Elon and Ron DeSantis's madness with with the the intelligent madness, I should say. You know, e- e- very genius idea is I think Elon wants to goad Trump to get back on Twitter. If his biggest uh, competitor is now taking over Twitter by storm, it is in Elon's best interest to have pretty much one of the most prolific tweeters of all time back on the platform as well to add to that market cap that uh, Alex mentioned. So I have a feeling that this is part of a larger plan. And Elon is definitely not a single-sided guy. He's uh, looking at this from all angles. What about the idea that there's, everyone's saying that there's a risky component? Is it in fact risky? And if so, does that add an element of brilliance or or something much different? I don't think it's risky, Josh. I think I think if it was uh, somebody from the other side, we'd still be seeing this. And I think that's what Elon Musk is is going to try to show the world that it doesn't matter if you're from the left or the right. You, this platform is for you, and it's across all mediums. So I don't think. Uh, I mean, uh, Mark, I'd love to hear uh, his take on what the risk is, but I don't think it's risk. I think he's using his promo for the platform. 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's a, any risk. If we're talking about risk to Governor DeSantis, I, I think there's there's little to no risk. I think we know that Elon is uh, fairly sympathetic to uh, fully sympathetic to DeSantis's cause. Um, as as we know, um, no secret, Elon tends to lean conservative. Uh, so I think that any risk that the New York Times, uh, who, as Josh reported, you heard it here first, by the way, folks, Josh Kerry reported the New York Times has no idea what Twitter Spaces is, or or all of the folks there had to ask their their uh, teenage children what Twitter Spaces is. Um, there's very little risk to Ron DeSantis, and I applaud him for choosing the platform and continue to applaud Elon for facilitating the next wave in citizen journalism and free speech on Twitter Spaces. What do we think Trump's response, either overt or quietly, is is really going to be to this. Well, first, we all know that he's going to say it on Truth Social first because he has to. Yeah, I would agree. He's he's going to have to do that, Josh. Um, but the temptation, um, you know, uh, one one thing that you guys have just nailed is that the temptation for him to respond on the biggest platform in the world for this would be obviously Twitter, just as he did when, for instance, uh, uh, he was able to uh, go after his political opponents on Twitter. This is his newest political opponent, a former uh, friend uh, that now he is going to be going after. And the question is, of course, whether or not uh, when you get down in the in the mud and you wrestle with pigs, as they say, be careful because the pigs like it. And so we're going to have to see how DeSantis handles that. He's been pretty good at, uh, you know, doing the wax on, wax off Mr. Miyagi um, with the press up until now. Uh, That's that's, of course, a reference to the Karate Kid. But uh, I think it's going to be a challenge when Trump really starts mudslinging for Governor DeSantis for him to uh, uh, react in a, a more adult fashion without just shying away from it. Because obviously, even the sitting president right now, Joe Biden, said, I'll, I, if, if we were back in school, I'd take him behind the shed and, and punch him in the face, I believe is roughly what he said about President Trump, which is a little bit getting down in the mud. But then he didn't have to do anything else after that because of COVID. He was able to just hide in his basement the whole time and then, you know, come out just like a like a bear after hibernation uh, and find out whether he won or lost. But I think this time around, it's going to be a little different, especially since he won't be able to hide in that proverbial basement. I want to get one more comment from the market masters on this very intriguing and exciting headline. Uh, Some are saying, the naysayers are saying that DeSantis is a pawn in Elon Musk's game. What do you make of that? Ooh, shots fired by Jock. Ooh. Yeah, totally. I mean, how do you, how do you know that, uh, you know, it could be said the other way around with DeSantis to uh, Musk? I mean, I think they're both benefit, benefiting immensely overusing each other. One for his platform, the other because of his platform. And, and what's that old saying? No press is bad press. Uh, Elon has been in the press in both the best light in the world as the richest man and also in the worst light in the world with every 
possible scandal and skeleton that they can rip out of uh, his closet. So, um, you know, he's going to get hate from the left. He's going to get love from the right. He's going to get hate from DeSantis's detractors. He's going to get love from DeSantis's supporters. So this is a big win. I don't see it as a risk. And I think this is just another way to continue to grow the platform. And again, back to the Trump thing, you know, a lot of the Republicans in the right are moving to true social because of the, the alleged liberalism that was uh, prolific on Twitter before Elon Musk, uh, you know, buying the platform. So um, he's ruffling the feathers as, you know, a good media personality does. And he's getting eyeballs, which is never a loss when you're talking about a business that runs on ads and daily active users. I could personally talk about this all day. I will not because we do have a lot to cover. We're going to move right on to the the debt ceiling debacle. Now, if we can, Market Masters, let's keep this to about three minutes max, because like I said, we do have a lot to continue to cover today. John DeGenerian, I'd love your take on this. Is the market changing its mind? As you know, the S&P 500 may be close to a 50-week high, but traders are still cautious ahead of a potential debt ceiling debacle. How do we unpack all of this? What do we need to know? Well, the bottom line, Josh, is that um, traders, uh, in particular, the traders in the NASDAQ, believe that we're going to see rates lower by year end, not higher. Um, and that remains to be seen. And we discuss that back and forth here all the time. Um, but they're putting their money where their mouth is, because if we were expecting for there to be uh, another two for instance, 25 basis points moves up to the upside, we would not see the NASDAQ rallying as it has. And even, as I said, Palo Alto Networks having a very strong report tonight. Um, so I, I would think that right now the, the market is uh, just hoping that we don't see what Mark said uh, Sunday, and that is that uh, we do a ludicrous 14th Amendment uh, which is only made for budget reconciliation or budgeting when you're breaking a stalemate, not meant at all, never prescribed for. And even Obama, President Obama said, do not use this in uh, debt ceiling relief. It is not made for that. It would be reversed. It would likely result in a downgrade of our debt. And we're hoping that that doesn't happen. And right now, cooler heads are saying it will not happen. And Mark, if there's a breach, what in the world actually happens? Well, you know, Josh, that's a really great question because I get asked this all the time by folks that are not, you know, uh, uh, market insiders and traders and money managers. It's just all of this news, all of this talk about, you know, the debt ceiling debate, the debt ceiling debacle, as many are calling it, as you did President Biden jetting off to Hiroshima for the G7 event this past weekend, controversially, rather than sitting down with McCarthy and other leaders of the Republicans to hammer out a debate, or hammer out a deal, excuse me, would debate the issues. What does this mean to the average person? What does this mean to the American economy? And I think it was framed best, Josh, by a report that came out midday today from our friends at Moody's. Within a week of a debt ceiling the failure to reach a deal on the debt ceiling and it being punted one way or the other, perhaps by the invocation of the 14th Amendment, which would be unconstitutional. But within one week of the failure to reach an agreement on uh, raising the debt ceiling, 
1.5 million Americans would lose their jobs, bringing unemployment from 3.4% to 5%. If, God forbid, as several have suggested it's possible, if politicians are able to kick the can down the road, perhaps through the use of the 14th Amendment and other uh, potential uh, uh, chicanery, within two months, if we fail to raise the debt ceiling, and again, this is not the budget, this is just the debt ceiling, how much the country is able to borrow on an aggregate basis, two months from the failure to reach a deal, 8 million people will lose their jobs, bringing unemployment from 3.4% to 7.8%, almost 8% unemployment. So the effects potentially are devastating, which is also why, by the way, the market, you started the segment by asking, has the market changed its mind in the relative probability of the failure to reach a deal while the market has gotten a little bit more sort of risk on, taking a little bit more of the position that, okay, maybe a failure to reach a deal is less or is more probable than we thought it was on Friday, still highly unlikely political suicide for anyone involved on both sides of the aisle. Mark, Mark, here's the question, though. I mean, we're such in a fragile state. We have been uh, for nearly a year now with the economy as a whole um, and a lot of slip ups, uh, according to our opinions, from what you describe as the feckless Fed. Uh, do we really want to go down this road where we're still trying to turn around the fragility of what's happened? Uh, whether it's the regional banking crisis, whether it was the the July, August, September, huge recession scares, um, and, and still a lot of people talking about how we're going to go into uh, a mild recession, how a lot of people are still talking about how we're not going to reduce rates till Q4, but most of them thinking till 2024. Is this something that we can handle from an economic point of view if we mess uh, the debt ceiling up. No, absolutely not. Because the statistic that I failed to include only because I tend to be an optimist, I tend to lean bull versus bear, um, is what is anticipated to happen to interest rates in against the backdrop of a failure to reach a deal on the debt ceiling. Interest rates would be expected to skyrocket, right? We're already experiencing a historic level of credit contraction particularly against the backdrop not only of what's going on with, with the highest pace of, of rate increases in modern history, Silicon Valley Bank and other providers of credit, particularly the small and medium-sized businesses, being eliminated from the banking sector. No, this, this would be horrible. It would be potentially devastating, not for the average person, although if you're one of those 1.5 million people, you might disagree with me, but the economy would trot on, but it would be further hampered, further impaired. Bad, bad news, which is also, by the way, why, Alex, I don't think that these politicians are going to let it happen. But I think they're going to bring it right up to the brink, which could cause consequences regardless, even if a deal is reached. If you remember, the last time this went around, our uh, uh, debt rating was actually downgraded. Well, it seems consumers haven't been distressed out since the Great Recession. Is that true? Um, well, yeah, I don't think they're that stressed out yet, though. I mean, I think that I, I, I get that comparison. I just don't think it's a valid one because consumers have definitely cut back, Josh, on their spending. One example just right now 
Um, and that uh, uh, email from Fox that I was responding to from Fox Business was about LVMH, um, which, uh, you know, is the Bernard uh, is the richest man in the world now from putting this company together with all these luxury brands. Um, and uh, they're expecting that those uh, luxury brands will not be in the same demand uh, going forward through 2023 from this point forward. And so he lost a billion dollars of his net worth in one day based on that, because obviously his net worth, just like Mr. Musk's, is primarily tied up in a single stock. So when LVMH went down, his net worth dropped dramatically. Um, and I think that's something that uh, is more worrisome, believe it or not, because we already know that the consumer has a lot of debt. They carry a lot on revolving interest on credit cards. All of that's bad. But if the 1% also decide that they are cutting back, that will have reverberations throughout the economy. Because now you're talking everything uh, basically taking itself down a notch or two. But other than that, Josh, I have not seen anywhere near the sort of rampant fear or uh, people running for the hills. Instead, they've just pared back their spending. And that's a big difference between running away from the market or paring back your spending, in my opinion. Yeah, and and yeah. Uh, so let, me, yeah. let me just follow that up real quick by saying, one, uh, the drop in LVMH stock was because my wife didn't buy handbags that week. Um, but Mr. Arnaud <laughs> is going to, you know, he represents... Uh, the one percenters, um, you know, high end luxury goods do not put on sales uh, and they very rarely, you know, collapse with uh, bad economic times. What I will say, John and I spoke at uh, an exclusive club uh, in Puerto Rico yesterday filled with very successful uh, businessmen, CEOs worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and they had questions. They had questions about you know, what is the expectation from the Fed over the course of the next four quarters? What is the expectation of central bank liquidity? What is the expectation of the economy? And should we be worried? So even though, let's call it the high-end market or these or the one percenters um, uh, don't normally get hurt above a certain threshold of, of wealth, they do have the questions and they do have the thoughts what should I expect? Yeah, and I'll leave this topic with uh, this information. Uh, when I was asking about being stressed out since the Great Recession, because I'm reading things like the median mortgage payment is at $2,800. The median rent is $1,850. And it now costs nearly $1,000 a month more to buy a house than to rent. So... Basic necessities are becoming unaffordable for Americans, perhaps. So suppose we could leave it right there. Going into the next, uh, like I said, Memorial Day is right around the corner. And what, what better to talk about than the airline industry? Nothing going on with them in uh, recent history. But let's talk about their prosperity because this Memorial Day weekend is it seems like, as always, gearing up to be one of the busiest ever for travel. AAA, in fact, predicts 
42 million Americans or more will go out of town instead of barbecuing in the backyard. That's up from 7% from last year. Mark, where will where will you be this Memorial Day? Well, I'm not going to disclose that because I'm trying to avoid the paparazzi as I normally do. Um, no, but listen, what, what this plays into is a question um, as to whether or not we are going to see continued bullishness from the airline sector. And I've been wondering, I, I really have, uh, whether or not the leisure consumer against the backdrop of what we were just talking about, of, of stress on the American consumer, that they're stressed out more than they have been in a long time. Average credit card debt crossed a trillion dollars last week. We reported that on the show. That's against the backdrop of interest rates at record high of 25%. So how much money, John, what is it, a quarter of a billion dollars a month just on interest, I think, that you you reported on Sunday? Um but folks are still traveling. They're still flying. I think that means good things, continued good things for the airline industry, at least over the next quarter or so. But that party's got to end at some point. Anyone else in the days have a uh, thought on that? I was just going to hop in with a question because I think the this data kind of slightly contradicts what we just discussed. So I just kind of wanted to discuss, you know, the the happy medium in between the two if if we're expecting one of the biggest travel weekends ever but we're also seeing consumers are quote unquote stressed and don't have you know as much money on hand that kind of seems at odds with each other and i know the data is what the data says but can can we make any any rhyme and or reason to to why people are spending on flights that are more expensive than ever as well um, yet we're expecting recessionary conditions on other types of spending. I think experiential is is still such a big thing. Um, and, and we knew it was with millennials, um, with a number of other alphabet themed uh, um, folks in the uh, uh, age groups. Uh, and I think that when what you're talking about, Nick, with um, them willing to travel, but cutting back elsewhere is how they're balancing, how they're meeting that balance. Um, they're going to have to cut back because they're not getting $1,200 checks from the government like they were during COVID. Um, and I think the in many cases, the savings that some people were able to put away have been depleted or vanished. And then the credit card debt that Mark spoke about again um, all of those things are valid and certainly driving uh, consumer spending in different directions. The trade down that we talk about all the time on this show, going down to the Dollar Tree or Dollar Store or um, going over to Walmart instead of uh, um, Whole Foods or whatever it might be. I think all of those things are valid, but a lot of that money that people saved there even with the inflation, is probably put into that experiential pot, whether it is a nice restaurant and not as often a nice restaurant, but a nice restaurant once a month or travel once every three months or six months. I think that's where that excess um, is going on that trade down. Well, I'll tell you where I will be going for Memorial Day weekend barbecue, and that will be to the San Juan Smokehouse which is at Taste the Smoke, because they use the Bitcoin Lightning Network to let me spend Bitcoin to pay for my beautiful ribs. Um, but after that beautiful, shameless plug with our friend Stephen, uh, I would like to say that, you know, we mentioned airlines earlier. 
And you have airlines like Allegiant, Spirit, uh, JetBlue, a lot of low-cost carriers are adding routes from secondary cities and advertising uh, price wars again. And I think that's a huge thing, right? They, they want to make the diminished travel uh, capacity that was there during uh, COVID era. Um, but, you know, just I, I believe it, it's a couple hundred just alone that Spirit and Allegiant uh, have added over the course of the last uh, couple months to various uh, destinations from those secondary cities. So it's not just New York. It's not Dallas, Chicago. We're talking about, you know, uh, places like, uh, you know, that are, are suburban and, and uh, lesser known airports. So I think the travel wars are on. And um, I think they're fighting for business, regardless of uh, potential, uh, you know, setbacks in the economy. Which, by the way, Alex, is why I say good for the airline stocks, but probably just for this quarter, right? Because um, airfare wars, I, I agree, right? Airfare wars tend to end badly for all of the participants. Tends to drag heavily on airline revenue. And John's absolutely right. The experiential spend from the American consumer continues despite all of the stresses. And and Nick was right. This is a very confusing and and seemingly uh, an opposite uh, a, a set of factors that are going on here. It can't go on forever. And if the airlines are going to get into a new airfare war as it relates to trying to get a diminishing uh, a pool of people that have the money to spend on airfare – that's not going to end well. So I think short-term positive next quarter. But after that, I'd be very concerned about how airline and travel names are going to perform. Speaking of ending well, I want to draw the focus to China for a moment, because as you may have heard, China bans Micron's chips with other U.S. chip makers in the crosshairs. And Micron's share of revenue coming from China is 11%. And other chip makers do have substantially more exposure to the Chinese market. John, what do we have to know about this? The uh, Micron technology um, is definitely one of those huge players um, in the DRAM and dynamic random access memory. And they have really profited mightily when we're having a big uh, run on chips they are one of the first beneficiaries that gets that big pop. Now, they had already rallied 40% this year. So this isn't one of those, Josh, where Crimea River for, for Micron uh, because they have this issue going on uh, with supply cuts aimed at restoring you know, some sort of equilibrium here. But this would be a big deal. Um, the United States doesn't want China to have as much of the high-end chips as we can possibly deny them. And so uh, I, I, I think overall it will be a short-term issue with Micron. I don't know that it causes them to give up a majority of that big gain that I said they already have this year, double or triple the uh, indexes. Um, but I do think that they could be vulnerable for a couple days and then Again, along with whatever resolution we have for the debt ceiling, then I think they can get back to work.
Do we have to yeah. fear any sort of retaliation given China's leadership still holding significant power? Sure. I, I, listen, I, I think so. I mean, not to jump in and, and talk over Dr. J, but um, I, I'm I'm very uh, concerned about uh, China and Chairman Xi's willingness to use political power to gain additional, you know, economic superiority. And look, you know, chips. We're talking about a sector that is absolutely essential, right? It's everything from our smart devices, our iPhones, our, our connected uh, appliances, cars, right? The chip shortage from the supply chain perspective causing so much of disruption in the auto industry uh, during and after the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic. And look, I'm going to bring up something that everybody loves to talk about, and we couldn't do a show without bringing up AI, right? Artificial intelligence. Those chips power the computers that make AI possible. So is is this kind of action on the part of China and, and Chairman Xi, who is not afraid of being highly aggressive, is this an indication of what they're willing to do to gain an advantage economically, strategically, and even from a military perspective? Yeah, it's, it's something they're willing to do, and I think there could be more in the offing. So while I agree with John's outlook as it relates to Micron, I'm concerned longer term on this kind of action from one of the global superpowers to gain that kind of dominance. And Josh will have uh, a, a pretty good uh, discussion, I would think, tomorrow on the NVIDIA call. Um, NVDA is intimately involved, uh, just as Microsoft is involved through its um, massive investment, multi-billion dollar investment with that company AI that does chat GPT, um, NVIDIA is one of the best and fastest uh, chips out there. So I got to believe in their earnings call tomorrow. Um, they'll, of course, describe their business, but I have to believe that they will also be asked to address this and what they think uh, we're likely to hear from uh, uh China going forward, given what's going on with Micron. I want to bring the uh, the debt ceiling deal back into the spotlight here. It seems that the debt ceiling deal depends on, is it crypto? And I'm saying that because President Joe Biden said on Sunday that he will not agree to a budget deal that favors wealthy tax cheats and cryptocurrency traders over struggling Americans. In a press conference, he called out Republican lawmakers for protecting wealthy tax cheats and those crypto traders while putting food assistance at risk for nearly one million Americans. I'm seeing a theme here. What do we say, Alex? Oh, it's it's definitely this. The whole problem is focused on cryptocurrency traders. I think this is the most ridiculous statement to uh, come out of his mouth on this topic in particular. Um, I don't care about political parties one way or another when it, you know, uh, on a general basis. Um, but the fact that he said that on Mike, I almost feel like it was a hot mic moment or it wasn't meant for this speech. Um, because that is absolutely ridiculous and doesn't even move the needle. His quote was, uh, he said, let me be clear. I'm not going to agree to a deal that protects wealthy tax cheats and crypto traders. It's it's not my fault he lost money on crap coins this year, okay? But, I mean, <laughs> the fact that <laughs> the fact that he said that 
you know, again, it doesn't cryptocurrency, quote unquote, traders or whatever Americans that deal with cryptocurrency are not moving the needle on any sort of there's a lot of other groups or a lot of other buckets to be worried about or to criticize. And I think this was something that just came out of his mouth, unscripted, most likely. And it's it's a complete farce. Uh, Alex, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. I think it was scripted. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, that, I think that, that person is... should be fired. But I mean, but I mean, it, it was how much how much money have we made in cryptocurrency to in in, in a market that has exploded uh, or imploded uh, from bankruptcies that we're cheating anybody in in the U.S. as far as it comes to taxes. It, it, I mean, it was, and by the way, I, I think those were two mutually exclusive comments. I don't think it was necessarily that the crypto traders are also the tax cheats, although I'm sure that's probably what Biden's opinion is. But it was almost like somebody told him, let's get in a zinger about crypto in the context of the debt ceiling. What does one have to do with the other, would be my question if I was present at that press conference. Well, you know, now that we're having a look. Now that we're having a little bit of a jam session on it, what have we brought up in numerous uh, previous uh, episodes, right? It's chokehold uh, 1.0, 2.0, and the regional banks and, and how uh, this kind of malarkey is basically taking, uh, you know, is a, is a war against crypto. So you're probably most likely right that this did you, was... Did a, you just say malarkey? But, I right? did. I did. I didn't have another word off the top of my head, and I said that. <laughs> can, can, can I get my producer to do a wah wah? Like we've still got like the sound effects going here, but I mean, I'm a better person than that. I'm come sorry, on, Mark. Alex, come on, man. Come on, but I man. think it's it's dropping subtle hints. It, it continues. The war on on digital assets and cryptocurrency continues, and subtle hints like this on a major. Uh, you know, topic in the U.S. right now, it, it probably is on purpose because they can't say anything more than dropping cryptocurrency because it would be a farce. But if you just throw in that word while making a speech on it, I agree. I, I, I think the war continues. And just to dispel any of the, you know, the, the, I think the misconceptions around paying taxes in crypto, we talked about this on, uh, on the show with Market Rebellion uh, earlier this week. But what we basically said is if you've ever paid taxes, you know, on crypto trading gains, you know that you end up paying more taxes than you should to make sure that the government does not come for you to fine you or say that you filed your taxes improperly. The only way to ensure that you're doing it right is actually pay more taxes so that you then get that refund and make sure that the government doesn't come for your throat. So uh, in, in a sense, you know, crypto traders are really the only ones paying more than they should to make sure that they are safe because of the lack of clarity and guardrails around what we can and cannot do. So if Biden wants to, to get on our case about evading taxes, then give us tax guidelines so that we can pay and that you, Biden, can ensure that you we are paying the correct amount. Because right now we're paying more than we should, and it's not helping anybody. Well, let me give you this quick example right now of the average uh, retail uh, cryptocurrency consumer. Okay. They, in, in 2021 or 2022, beginning of 2022, you know, they, they started off with 10 grand. They made five grand. They paid taxes on that five grand. 
uh, you know, whatever their tax rate is. And then uh, due to uh, people like Gary Gensler and, and idiot regulators who allow uh, things like FTX and F- uh, Sam Bankman fried to come into play, uh, there's a string of bankruptcies um, and they lose 20 grand, but they've already paid their taxes from the previous year. Net uh, net, they're at a loss. You know, I mean, it, it, to, to think that any of them are cheating the American uh, tax code system is preposterous. Well, Reuters calls its crypto fraud with commingle news, but isn't news. Reuters reported this morning a person with direct knowledge of Binance's group finances said the sums ran into the billions with a B, billions of dollars, and commingling happened almost daily in accounts the exchange held at U.S. lender Silvergate Bank. About well, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to regulator fault here. You know, if, if that is truly the case, and there's a lot of fud that's been. Uh, against CZ, the founder and CEO of uh, um it, it falls again on regulators, uh, which again have had missteps in the regional banking crisis, Silvergate being the first one to spill, uh, followed by systemically others. But why, why would that even be allowed to happen in a bank? Why would customer act? Now, commingling is is allowed in customer accounts and it's done all over wall street and and various venues uh where you have omnibus uh accounts but here they're saying uh that somebody from the inside said customer and company funds were commingled which is absolutely a no-no if that is the case that's not a binance issue that's a regulator issue and a silvergate issue we should also note that uh, no client monies were lost or stolen. So, um, you know, although that there may have been an accounting issue or, you know, just a just a back end reporting issue, no one was uh, reporting lost or stolen money, which is uh, something we have seen from other exchanges. I, I question the timing of this. Right. Um, this is not news in terms of whether or not this information was was recent. This information has been around for a while, based on uh, my understanding of, of the story. So I kind of question the timing on Reuters' part of why it is that this was so relevant today. Nick and Alex, do you guys have any idea as to why the timing of this is sort of as suspect as I think it might be? Yeah, it could be paid for by Coinbase, Mark. Listen, chokehold 2.0. That's what it is. I'm telling you, the subtleties in this war are are just going to keep on coming. Yeah, I agree with Alex. I think, you know, I don't know if there's an exact kind of timing narrative to this, but, you know, the previous news that we just got hit with recently was related to Biden, uh, you know, calling out crypto by name. So if I was to make a guess as someone who, you know, has some sort of uh, vision into how the media operates or the the traditional media, I should say, they are piggybacking off of a narrative that uh, the left side very much enjoys. And it's an easy story that is going to get picked up and therefore gets uh, clicks for Reuters. So that's uh, that's my thesis. And, and I'm, I'm really glad you said that, Nick, because I've been asked that a lot since that piece came out from Reuters this morning. Does it ha- specifically, does it have anything to do 
with Biden's comments as it relates to the debt ceiling and the role of crypto. And I at first, you know, even being as suspect as I am with, with these kind of things from the government said, eh, you know, that might be a bridge too far. I'm starting to think that there might be a connection. Well, you guys- Thank you, Mark. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that, Mark. There's, uh, it, it's we're we're seeing you know punches in in series of two or three. So I think if if you do if we're absent a ne- a negative crypto media story for you know seven ten days, I would expect you know on day eleven or twelve to get hit with one or two stories. It seems to be the truth is though nobody cares. Market didn't move, so non-story. Uh, I do want to talk about maybe there is uh, a story with the demand for the ETH network participation, which remains strong. I'm talking about the length of time to enter the Ethereum, Ethereum, sorry, Ethereum validator queue is more than 36 days long with more than 68,000 entities waiting to join with only 35 people waiting to leave. What does this indicate? People like free money. Well, it definitely, people like Go ahead, money. Max. So, of course, there's going to be a ton of demand for validator notes because it's basically a better form of staking. Um, so, for me, it's like a no-brainer, right? But as the network expands, you're going to uh, this is you know it's definitely going to increase demand, um, and more people will be able to join these nodes. So, this is a good thing in the long run and shows you how robust the Ethereum ecosystem really is. And to give a little bit of statistics to what Max mentioned, I believe the uh, reward, the APY for uh, being a validator is about 5% annually, which is relatively strong if you believe that Ethereum is going to continue to appreciate in value. Uh, therefore, you know, and also joining the network, um, you know, adds a few more benefits than just being someone who holds Ethereum in a hot wallet. So um, this is a, a very strong indication that there is going to be demand, not only in short term, but also the long term to operate and run the network. Just like in, when we talk about Bitcoin, Bitcoin's strength is in the miners and the distribution of the miners. And now Ethereum is kind of working in a, in a more intelligent system. Um, you know, that we can, that's up for debate because there are proof of work and proof of stake uh, maxis on both ends. But the more validators equal a stronger network or distributed network and if those validators are continuously being rewarded uh, properly then they will stick around and continue to strengthen the network so to put it very simply the more demand to enter the validator queue the stronger the ethereum network is and the greater chance for long-term price and more decentralized price. which i think is a big point you, you guys must have said something so <laughs> silent that it just took all of them, the market. I, I was just shocked, the Mark. Producers, shocked. everybody was just so blown away. And it, and if our normal host Rob Rob Nelson was on, this would be about the point where he would turn to John and ask whether or not Gary Gensler is still a poser. And I think we know, <laughs> John. Do we have it? Do we have an update on that? Uh, is Gary Gensler still a poser? Uh, well, he apparently is an even bigger poser if he's the one that gave. Biden that line about, well, I'm not going to negotiate this budget thing with a bunch of crypto thieves that are skipping out on their taxes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and, and by the way, you know, Matt, did were the crypto bros invited to that debate, and I just didn't get the memo? Like, what is? Yeah, that? like total shocker to me that you could avoid taxes on crypto. Um, I'm pretty sure I've been paying taxes on all of my capital gains in crypto, just like everybody else does. So if there's loopholes, I don't know them. Somebody should educate me. 
or better still, that you're the reason why the debt ceiling agreement has not been reached. I, I didn't know uh, well, this conversation. It's like Murphy's Law, right? Like everything bad that happens has to be because of crypto. I heard the crypto guys hate puppies and kids too. This is this is also breaking news. We do. We hate them. <laughs> and the American flag. <laughs> we should. Uh, you guys think uh, Gensler would come up here and talk about Algorand? You think he would accept that invitation? Yeah, why not? He promoted it at uh, MIT, and uh, he's never traded a single crypto product in his life. Never done a single digital asset, according to his testimony before Congress. By the way, did we mention how good the CFTC commissioner was um, at the Battlefin conference? Because I was really impressed. Well, first they want to say, Max, thank you very much for the shout out, of course. For the best in alternative data and all your data-related needs, go to battlefin.com. Uh, the unofficial unpaid third sponsor, the second sponsor, of course, being some rib joint in Puerto Rico. You're getting it in. Oh, yeah. Sam wants Smokehouse, baby. Okay. Smokehouse. Stephen, you are the best. Jesus Christ. Okay. Listen, does Stephen know he's going to be getting a bill because advertising on this program is not cheap? Oh, he's going to get a bill, all right. And it's going to be Alex (laughs) and John lined up there for some barbecued brisket. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm just mad that you guys haven't taken me there. Josh Perry, our special host, bring us back on track before the market masters take us totally off beast here. Hey, hey, that's that's all good for me. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us, tuning in, spending time with us and the market masters, of course. You're tuned in right to the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Show right here on Twitter Space. It's coming to you live 5.30 p.m. Eastern. You know it. Every Sunday, every Tuesday, and every Thursday. Uh, we're going to segue in just a moment to our second hour, Beyond B3 which is our audience engagement. It's all for you, B3 Nation. I, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank our um, market masters. Please follow along. Get Rev Radio right here on Twitter. And to Revolution Radio's Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.